We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. All right, Fitz, I want you to close your eyes and imagine this scene. Andrew, I can do that for you. Uh, My eyes are closed. What is up? Actually, uh, wait, uh, open your eyes. Tell me, what do you know about the Elwha River? Not a ton. I mean, I know it's on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, and it comes out of the Olympic Mountains and goes into the Pacific Ocean. Okay, so, yeah, you're on the right track. It is a wild, wild river. It's short, only about 60 miles long, and it's steep and fast and violent. The water drains off of the glaciers in the Olympic Mountains that you were mentioning, and those are some of the most remote and glaciated mountains we have in the lower 48. So it's frigidly cold water, which gets funneled out of the mountains and into the Olympic rainforest, and in the process, it becomes the Elwha River. Now, the Olympic rainforest is the only rainforest in the United States outside of Hawaii. It's wet, cold country that teems with life. Bears, cougars, elk, bald eagles, they all roam the landscape. Evergreen trees are draped in long tangles of moss. The area is known for thick fog, long bouts of rain, and eerie, eerie silence. And the Elwha, it it churns right through the middle of this. It carves its way through box canyons, gets whipped through deadly gut-drop rapids, and thrown over towering waterfalls. There are basically no roads near the Elwha. Most of the river sits within the Olympic National Park, which is famously remote and pristine. Researchers have actually said the quietest place in all of America lies within the Olympic Park. Wow. All right, so now close your eyes and situate yourself on the edge of the Elwha. Say you've hiked in five or ten miles, you're enjoying the scenery, you're sitting down to lunch next to the river. Maybe it's an especially beautiful spot at the end of a box canyon. As you look upriver, tall, steep canyon walls frame the icy blue water. Evergreens surround you. Other than the sound of the river, you can't hear a thing. Okay, I'm feeling calm. I'm enjoying this little exercise, Andrew. Now, imagine there's white water, a a class three rapid, something you'd want a raft or a kayak for. And there's a churning hole. It looks like a water in a washing machine. Water gets sucked over a drop and then churns up and back over itself, creating a wave that then crashes back onto itself. It's cyclical, circular, and endless motion. They're sort of mesmerizing to watch. Okay, I'm starting to feel less calm. And then just downstream, there's a pile of logs that have hung up right below the rapid. They've sort of created a giant log jam. There's fish jumping up the rapid. Okay, I am seeing it. Out of nowhere, you see a silhouette of a man 
in the river. It looks like he might be in a wetsuit, but he's face down in the water head first. He's not wearing a life preserver and he's headed right for the rapid. Uh, this does not seem good to me. It, it's tough to tell, but it looks like a snorkel might be attached. The water is starting to move faster. It's getting channeled into the rapid and you're watching this body. It's starting to head right for the rapid. This isn't fun. Right as this limp looking body is about to get sucked into the hole head first, this man comes to life and this maniac <laughs> launches out of the water. He somehow propels himself out of the rapid like a fish and just does this huge belly flop oh, into the rapid. This is ridiculous. And then just as quickly, he's gone, disappears, sucked under the frothing water. The last you saw of him, it looked like he might have gotten sucked under that log jam just below the rapid. And then suddenly, this guy pops up out of the river, downstream below the log jam, and he spits a snorkel out of his mouth, rips the mask off his face, flashes this huge shit-eating grin, and tells you, you won't believe this, but I just saw 80 steelhead trout hanging out under that log jam. I'm guessing you are making this up, but it sounds almost too good to be true. Fitz, I'm telling you, I met a guy. You need to meet John McMillan. Professionally, my title is I'm the Steelhead Science Director for Trout Unlimited's Wild Steelhead Initiative. So John is a river snorkeler. And I love to go down the rapids. I love to swim through log jams. They're really large, say sometimes the size of a house. But if you crawl to the bottom of the log jam, that's kind of where the world gets interesting because what you'll see under these log jams often are adult fish that are packed in there like sardines, just lying on their side on the very bottom of the river, protected by all this wood. But there's something about it. It's the inner kid in us. You know what I mean? It's that inner adventure seeker. And I can't not help it. That's half the attraction to snorkeling for me is going down through those rapids. And Fitz, get this. He isn't just doing this for kicks. He, he's actually a serious scientist. He's doing research. So, th so that's actually like a job you could have in this world is to be a river snorkeling scientist. Yeah. Apparently you actually can get paid to do this, but I have to say this is not the story I set out to tell. This story went a lot of different directions. And today we present the next installment of our Endangered Spaces series. Usually on our Endangered Spaces, we bring you stories about people fighting to protect land under attack, land that is beloved but might soon be lost to the conquests of society's desires. Today, though, we have a story, a rare story, where nature gets a chance to fight back on its own. A story where the natural world is able to show us what it's capable of and what happens when we put good ideas into action. There's hope out there. I'm Fitz Cahal. And I'm producer Andrew Burton. Welcome to the Dirtbag Diaries. So 
Before I can explain why, in the name of science, John is spending his days tackling the whitewater of the Elwha headfirst, we have to talk about two other things. We have to talk about history, and we have to talk about fish. So I started my research, and I made a few calls, and I came across a friend of John's and a fellow river snorkeler from the other side of Washington State. My name is Russ Ricketts, and I'm into snorkeling in rivers. River snorkeling is exactly what it sounds like. Throw on a mask and a snorkel, maybe a wetsuit if you're in cold water, and go for a swim. This is like a middle-aged fat guy thing. We're genetically adapted to the pinniped shape, you know, the seal or the otter. I mean, we're, we're fucking rock stars at this stuff. Don't let Russ's sense of humor fool you. This requires a ridiculous amount of skill. The moment these human otters slide into the water, they, in essence, turn into pinballs. They get bounced off rocks, dodge logs, and in the Pacific Northwest, they do it in water barely above freezing. It's like ice climbing, but like more wet and miserable with a chance of trout. And in this wet, cold pinball machine, the snorkeler has to try to not disturb the fish. Russ fell in love with fish through river snorkeling, and he sort of sold me on them. Fish get a bad rap because they're just not snuggly. They're just not cute. They're unknowable in some way. Because they're not cuddly, most people totally miss just how epic these creatures are. And the life cycle of fish? Way more epic than anything Hollywood could ever come up with. Russ thinks if you tried to turn a salmon into a movie character and pitch it to a room full of screenwriters... You would be laughed out of the room if you tried to do this with humans. I mean, it is, it's absurd. It's like true blood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Take salmon in the Elwha, for instance. Five distinct species of salmon live in the river. Pink, coho, chinook, chum, and sockeye. Before two dams were built on the river in 1910, a salmon life cycle would have looked a little like this. The salmon hatch in the winter months. In the spring, millions of salmon start to swim downstream to the ocean. And it's mayhem. The tiny salmon get picked off left and right by other fish, by eagles, by hawks, by otters. So they try to make it quickly. These one-inch fish swim the entire length of the Elwha's 50 or 60 miles in just a few days. And the lucky ones, they make it to the ocean. The fish then morph their entire bodies to live in this brand new ecosystem. And they start to grow, rapidly, to hundreds of times their original size. And they adapt from living in freshwater to living in saltwater. Fully grown Chinook salmon can grow as big as 100 pounds and 4 feet long. The salmon spend between one to six years out in the ocean. The time frame depends upon the species, and in that time, they transform into the iconic photographic fish that you see in the mouths of grizzly bears or in the pages of National Geographic. And then, in the autumn, they begin their journey home, back to the headwaters of the Elwha. By this point, 95% of the fish that started the journey years ago have been killed. If they didn't die headed out to the ocean, many got eaten by orca whales and seals. Of those original millions, only the strongest 5% remain. And this, this is when their story goes fully violent, because as soon as the salmon enter back into the freshwater, they start to fight and mate their way upstream, 
all at once. It is full-on sadism. Hundreds of thousands of fish bite each other, taking out whole chunks of flesh while they try and mate and swim upstream. It's like a porno version of what's that one with the, she's got the bow and arrow. Oh my God. The Hunger Games. <laughs> the Clallam tribe has photos of men holding salmon taller than them. Legend has it that the salmon runs used to get so big, the rivers would physically rise above normal water levels. That humans and animals alike could smell the fish run from miles away. And that people could walk across the river on the backs of salmon. The settlers used pitchforks to collect salmon from the rivers. And all of this, the baby-making and the jumping of waterfalls and the dodging of bears and the settlers with pitchforks and the swooping eagles and the salmon attacking each other, it's all eventually to die. Just miles of stinking, rotting corpses. But amidst all that death, the salmon's fertilized eggs lay nestled amongst the rocks. The salmon's own children laying next to their dead parents and waiting to be born, waiting for it all to begin again next season, waiting for their turn to go on one of nature's greatest journeys. And the rotting carcasses of the fish acted as a huge source of nutrients for the entire ecosystem. Each year, the salmon brought millions of calories from the ocean up to the furthest reaches of the river in the deepest parts of the forest and fed not just the bears and the eagles, but brought nitrogen and phosphorus, which grows algae, which feeds insects, which feeds fish. Scientists have found nutrients from salmon inside the forest's tallest trees. Researchers in Alaska have actually shown that trees literally grow faster during larger salmon runs. Salmon are the totem animal of our entire region. This is the most important animal for a thousand miles in either direction. About 110 years ago, the version of the story I just told you changed drastically. A guy by the name of Thomas Aldwell came along and put up two dams right at the mouth of the Elwha. Aldwell, a Canadian entrepreneur, had lived in the region for more than 20 years, and he envisioned the town of Port Angeles growing through logging old-growth forests and lumber mills and manufacturing. He knew the mills would require greater sources of electricity, and thought that hydroelectric dams on the river could generate that power. It took him more than a decade to purchase land on the Elwha, find business partners, and secure financing. But by 1910, his vision had become a reality, and construction began on the first two dams. But here's the thing. As Aldwell willed these dams into existence, he completely ignored two critical things— First, he ignored the Clallam Elwha tribe who had lived in the region for millennia. The Elwha River um, for our tribe was the creation site. This is Robert Ellison, a tribal elder and the river restoration director with the Lower Elwha Clallam tribe. 
he told me what the tribe's creation site looked like before the dams changed the character of the river. There is actually um, some perfectly round holes in solid rock that members of the tribe used to do vision quests and go up there and they'd dip their hand in and grab what was ever in the bottom of the hole and it would give them some idea of what their future, their life might be like. When the dams went in, they flooded the tribe's most sacred sites, drowned them under torrents of water and mud. This was during an ugly, abusive period in American expansionism where indigenous peoples of North America were systemically killed, abused, lied to, and exploited, and Westerners marched west. And were the tribes ever consulted before the dams were built? No, they were not consulted at all. As a matter of fact, there were very few tribal members left at that time. We did not even have our rights recognized, citizenship even. Yeah, there were times when we could not even speak our language. It was outlawed. Second, Aldwell ignored a state law from 1890 that required that fish be able to swim as far up the river as possible. Even in the 1800s and early 1900s, people understood the importance of fish to an ecosystem, especially salmon. Usually, this would mean the construction of a fish ladder alongside the dam, a structure sort of akin to a staircase with water running down it that allows the fish to bypass the dam by jumping up the staircase. But Aldwell skipped that step, too. The first of the two dams was built just five miles from the mouth of the river. Completion of the second dam occurred in 1927. Within months of the dam's construction, two reservoirs formed behind the dams. The forest drowned. What had been this wild, untamed, vicious river almost instantly became a shadow of its former self. The dams trapped some fish in the uppermost stretches of the river and trapped a whole lot more fish in the waters below. When those fish tried to return to the river to spawn, they could only make it five miles upstream before they ran into the dam. And that was the story for a hundred years. Generation after generation of fish swam up to the dam 200 feet tall. They would jump mightily and in vain, only to slam into the concrete. People quickly realized the massive disruption the dams had created in the ecosystem. As early as the 1920s, a hatchery program was implemented where people attempted to grow and raise fish artificially and put them back into the river. However, that first attempt failed, and they closed the hatchery. Then, between the 1950s and the 1970s, the state of Washington and the Lower Elwha Clallam tribe built hatcheries, respectively, in an attempt to boost fish populations. Both of those hatcheries were more successful in raising fish, but they only released fish into the lower five miles of the river, still below the dams. In the 1970s and the 1980s, a coalition of groups began to press for the removal of the dams. The battle was epic. It dragged on for decades. Lawsuits flew like punches, protests snarled city streets. The issue was debated by governors and in the halls of Congress. It involved all manner of folks, tribal members and bird watchers and loggers and townies and fishermen and environmentalists and senators. All the while, fish ran into that wall. Those who didn't like the dam argued they had been built illegally. Those in favor of the dam said they controlled the river and kept the town safe. 
One side said that the historic fish runs would return if people would only give nature a chance. The other side said the dams had created two beautiful reservoirs, a favorite recreation spot for boaters and hikers and campers. Folks argued that the dams didn't even generate enough electricity to be profitable, and that the electricity from the dams could be generated from other sources. Others retorted, you can't change history. This is just the way it is now. But really, nobody actually knew what, if anything, would happen if you took the dams out. Would the fish return? Would the salmon remember where their ancestors had come from? What about the drained reservoirs? And all that sediment that had been built up behind the dams? What would happen to that? Nobody could say. No one in the course of history had ever tried to remove a dam of this size and scale. While the battle over the dams raged, John McMillan, from the top of the episode, grew up in Washington. Throughout his childhood, he fished and swam the rivers of the Pacific Northwest and gradually developed his passion for river snorkeling. For anybody who's a Buddhist or practices meditation to search in search of that emptiness, you know, I've never been able to really accomplish much emptiness in my meditation and, and probably because I'm not very good at it when I'm above water, but when I'm down in the water snorkeling, that's the time when my mind goes empty. You're just completely in tune with that moment. And so I've been in the water with hundreds of fish, thousands literally, that are just kind of even bumping up against me as they're moving upstream, just like I'm another fish. They don't seem to care at all. There's a brief moment in time there where I'm, I'm a bit confused myself. Am I a salmon or a human? In 1992, Congress passed the Elwha River Ecosystem and Fisheries Restoration Act, which legally allowed for the removal of the dams. But it wasn't until the mid to late aughts that momentum to remove the dams actually began to pick up steam. The period that led up to the removal was an absolute flurry of activity. The clock was ticking, demolition would begin soon. And if scientists wanted answers to questions about what effect major dam removal could have on an ecosystem, they had to scramble to create a record of what that ecosystem looked like with the dams in place. Here's John. You know, in most watersheds, you might work with a group of 10 12 scientists. And in this case, there were probably 50 to 60 different scientists, depending on the month or the topic, right? There were people studying the sediment, the mammals, the birds, or people studying the vegetation. Dozens of researchers from a panoply of organizations joined the effort. It was in the middle of this pre-dam removal frenzy that John, fresh out of grad school with a master's in fishery science from Oregon State University, got hired on as a fishery research scientist for Northwest Fishery Science Center. And he, and his snorkel, joined the effort to record a snapshot of the Elwha before the removal of the dams. I think the main reason snorkeling is used is to provide us a count of fish, and it gives us a snapshot in time of where those fish are distributed spatially within a watershed. From the surface of the river, when you look down, it's very hard to figure out if there's any life in the river, you might be able to see a couple of fish, an insect on the surface, but as soon as you pull your head under that water, you're shocked by the amount of life and activity that is occurring under there. It's like a little bustling New York City. The scientists tackled the river section by section. Two researchers spotted fish with their snorkels in the river, one on the left, one on the right. Meanwhile, fellow scientists would stand on the shores and record their results. 
To achieve this was no small feat. They frequently used many pack mules to haul gear in dozens of miles upriver. Over a period of days, they would snorkel, count fish, camp, dry their wetsuits over the campfire, and do it all over again the next day. A lot of the time, there's a peaceful, quiet approach to the work of counting fish. John says he'll often dive deep into the bottom of a pool, sit down, and place a rock on his lap to hold him down. And then he'll just quietly watch the fish swim by, keeping track of what he sees in his head before he resurfaces. But when the opportunity arises, John dives headfirst into the chaos of log jams and rapids, not just because he loves it, but because he knows there's fish hiding in there. We had a, a number of creeks where it was really common for me to swim maybe, you know, 10 to 15 yards under a log jam, count the fish, and then pop back up at the other end. John says his fellow scientists are not always too pleased about this. I've had a number of people tell me during surveys to knock it off because they're not comfortable. I tell them, suck it. I'm the one snorkeling. <laughs> I don't care whether you're not comfortable with this shit, right? You know, I mean, I am doing it, man, because that's the way I count fish. The image John and the other scientists found of the fish population in the Elwha before the dams came out was predictably bleak. Above the dams, they didn't find a single wild salmon or steelhead trout, the type that go out to the ocean and return. Compared to other rivers in the region, the Elwha's fish population was a mere fraction of what it could have been. None of the fish could make it past that first dam. There would literally be hundreds of salmon, sometimes thousands of salmon sitting there in that pool with their nose right butted up against the bedrock base of the dam. To watch these fish continue to ram their nose against concrete to the point where the cartilage starts to stick out from the flesh, it was depressing to see that. But despite all the tireless research, as the date of removal drew nearer, a lot of questions still remained. Would the salmon return? How long would it take? Would their populations swell? What about the rest of the ecosystem? Scientists also wondered what the hell was going to happen with all that sediment above the dams. They estimated that 20 million cubic meters of earth had lodged itself behind the concrete walls. The crazy thing was, researchers didn't have any models or real-world examples to predict what this much sediment would do. Turns out, the best they could do was look at the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, which had unleashed an unprecedented amount of debris into the surrounding waterways like the Toodle River. Six years after the mountain exploded, the Toodle had the largest return of winter steelhead out of any stream in the lower Columbia after having been decimated by the volcanic eruption. So John knew that the fish could be resilient, but he says in those final days before dam removal, he almost wished he could have sounded an alarm, given the whole ecosystem a warning. This gargantuan change is about to hit you. That's something that kind of tugs at your heartstrings as a scientist and a conservationist, that there are animals that will pay the price for this. After the break, the dams come down. Support for the Diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. They've just re-released their award-winning film, Damn Nation. The documentary explores the shift in perspective from viewing big dams as engineering wonders towards the growing awareness 
that our future is closely tied to the health of our rivers. Directors Ben Knight and Travis Rummel deliver a thought-provoking film. It's awesome and funny. Katie Lee is my favorite part of it. Watch Damnation for free on Patagonia's YouTube channel or at patagonia.com slash films. Enjoy. Additional support for the Diaries comes from Kicking Horse Coffee. Their founders dreamed of waking up the world with 100% organic, 100% fair trade coffee. So they roasted small batches of beans in their garage and hand-delivered coffee from the back of a station wagon. 20 years later, the garage is a little bit bigger and there's a lot more beans, but Kicking Horse Coffee remains committed to the same good values. Dream, then do. Find it at Amazon or kickinghorsecoffee.com. And support comes from Kuat Racks, who have been with us for over a decade. Kuat began as an idea for a better way to transport bikes in 2008 and has evolved into a thriving company that creates high-end and awesomely engineered hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories that push the envelope of innovation. Kuat, because you love your bike. In 2011, it was time for the first of the two dams to come out. Rob Ellison, the tribe's river restoration director, had spent more than 20 years fighting for this day. That September, he attended a giant ceremony held to begin the demolition process, along with 300 others, including the governor of Washington, the secretary of the interior, and dozens of VIPs from the region. It actually brought tears to my eyes. I was invited up to watch the uh, turbines get shut down at both dams took a half hour, 40 minutes for them to stop spinning after they were shut off. <laughs> and then we had a giant celebration. The removal process took years, sort of like disassembling a Jenga tower, bit by bit, only with this huge wall of water pressed up against the tower and enough mud to fill three Empire State buildings. The process involved earth movers, excavators mounted on barges, and controlled releases of water. By 2014, they started in on the second dam. And then, in the final stages, the engineers pulled out the bombs. only way to remove the final section of the wall was to blow them up. The videos, you can find them online, of the dams coming out are just complete visual spectacles. This raging wall of water filled with mud and logs and rocks goes ripping down this river valley, instantly rewriting the river's structure and just taking out everything in its path. It looks pretty otherworldly, like a hybrid of an avalanche and an ocean wave let loose in a rainforest ravine. Above the dams, the remaining water in the reservoirs drained out instantly and left behind gaping, muddy valleys. John was miles downriver when it went off. I was out there the day that they had to blow that last rockfall, and I felt it much in the same way that I felt the earthquake from the Mount St. Helens eruption. So it really did bring me back to 1980 as a little boy. The instantaneous change above the dams demonstrated in an especially stark way the extent the damage Aldwell had done more than 100 years prior. Hundreds of massive tree stumps stood amidst the muddy embankments where loggers had cleared the forest to make way for the reservoirs. 
It looked like a bombed-out, apocalyptic landscape. At first, things looked bleak for the ecosystem. The sediment behind the dams made the water so muddy and thick, 95% of aquatic insects died. Huge numbers of fish in the river starved or suffocated, their gills clogged with mud. River snorkeling was out of the question at that time. The river just, it looked like a milkshake. You couldn't see anything under the surface. But gradually, the water cleared, and the time arrived for John to don his snorkel and find out what the removal of the dams actually meant for the fish. Miraculously, just weeks after the final blast, researchers recorded new bull trout above the site of the dams, a section fish had not been able to access in 100 years. Once we started to see those first adults that had made it on their own past the dams, then it was just like a, a good shot of adrenaline. All that ingrained primal knowledge, it hadn't been lost. All those fish circling in the pools, under the dams, vainly hoping to keep going. They finally got their chance, and it looked like some of them were going to make the most of it. Since 2014, John has been particularly interested to see how his favorite fish would respond. It's the fish that inspires him to dive deep under log jams, fight his way into rapids, and embark on long, no-exit floats, the steelhead trout. Steelhead, like salmon, make the river-to-ocean-to-river trip, except steelhead can actually make that journey up to eight times. They're like the explorers of the steelhead salmon world. They love to swim way up high into the very headwaters of the watershed where you have the most remote canyons. So they love deep, steep canyons, places where humans and other animals struggle to get. They're kind of like solitary trappers of the fish world. A few years after the removal, John hiked far, far upriver on a personal outing. It was late fall, the water was getting cold, he was 50 miles up into the tributaries. He put on his dry suit, grabbed his camera, and jumped in the river. His eyes adjusted to the light, and he could not believe what he saw beneath him. This is a steelhead. I got a photo of it. So the first thing I did was I just immediately sprinted in my dry suit a mile and a half back down to my truck and called my boss. Look what I found. You're not going to believe what I saw. And he was really excited. So John returned to the pool the next year to recount. And I was just screaming to my friends and my colleagues like, there are 40 steelhead in here, man. This is absolutely astonishing. The summer steelhead trout have been like riverine phoenixes rising from the ashes. In 2018, a team of scientists from a group of organizations did a river snorkel survey in an upper portion of the river far from the ocean, in remote, difficult-to-access terrain. They used pack mules, camped, built fires each night, and river snorkeled each day. By their estimates, up to 900 steelhead have returned to the Elwha. You know, I don't think any of us as scientists expected the recovery of any fish to be that quick, but it's true that you just don't underestimate nature. You know, its ability to rebound is remarkable. And all that sediment? All 20 million cubic meters of it, it slowly made its way downriver, bringing with it logs and gravel and dirt. 
completely rewriting the river's path over and over again. John says that compared to 2009, it is simply a different river. The densities of juvenile salmon and steelhead that I see in the Elwha are higher than I see in any river in western Washington. And along the riverbanks where the reservoirs once stood, fast-growing alder trees now stand proudly 20 feet tall. With time, researchers predict the iconic evergreen trees of the Pacific Northwest will creep down to the river's edge, overshadow the alders, and shrink the huge open clearing that the reservoirs once filled. It took years, but elk now explore the new sections of the forest. Here's Rob Ellison of the Lower Elwha Clallam tribe again. My property is on Power Plant Road, which was the road that led to the dam. And the uh, elk did start coming back to that stream. And I used to have dreams when I was a kid about seeing elk in the field out here. And uh, about four years ago, I was driving up our road and a couple of bull elk and a, a cow elk uh, walked right across the road right in front of me. So that was amazing. Black bears, cougars, studies have shown that the American dipper, a bird that hunts fish, is now more likely to have two sets of young in a year instead of one. Species of fish that the dams had trapped in the upper sections of the river, like the bull trout, have been found downriver, fatter, livelier than before. Here's John. This place is just literally coming alive. And I didn't think it would happen that rapidly, to tell you the Mm. truth. I'm a bit surprised. But it's just flooded with fish, and the whole place is alive, unlike it ever was before. Bears and coyotes and every organism imaginable is now taking advantage of those anadromous species of fish. And the delta at the mouth of the river, where it empties into the Pacific, continues to reconfigure again and again as the river pushes the extra sediment around. Like a high-pressure hose left uncontrolled, the river is meandering back and forth, creating a natural wetland where, about a year after the dams came out, a small fish called the Yulikon had returned. The whole mouth of the Elwha, the whole estuary was just riddled, just teeming with hundreds, if not thousands, of seagulls. There were about 50 bald eagles. There were blue herons. There was just every pacivorous bird that we have that likes to eat fish was out there. And it was just amazing to watch that transformation happening so rapidly. The sediment has also reformed sandy beaches at the mouth of the river and sandbars on the ocean floor that have reshaped the surf break. Studies have shown that the ocean's ecosystems around the river mouth have seen enormous growths in activity, including more dungeness crab. A sociological recovery has taken place, too. Rob Ellison says there's a local pride for the tribe, knowing how hard they had to fight, bureaucratically, politically, scientifically, over decades to get their river back. Soon after the river drained, tribal members went looking for their creation site miles upriver, with sections of steep, muddy valley walls and few trails. It's not easy to get to, but it was easy to recognize from the description. Yeah, I can remember I was pretty excited. I I actually got to go up and look at it and and dip my hand into the round hole in the rock. I mean, they're perfectly round, too. I I think I got so excited, I don't even remember what I brought out over there when I reached down and checked out the bottom.
it seems like things have gone amazingly well. Well, actually, no, not quite. In fact, this is something that scientist after scientist impressed upon me during research. So this is a vast, complex, multi-ecosystem, intertwined story. It's actually not easy to summarize, even though that's what we're trying to do. Sure, there's been good news, but this story is far from complete. Ecologically, the damage done for the past hundred years sits like a deep wound on the landscape, and the ecosystem is still in the scabbing and scarring process. So take the pink salmon. They haven't fared so well. Before the dam removal, tens of thousands of pink salmon still attempted to swim up the Elwha each year. They would only make it as far as the dam, but still, those thousands of pinks managed to eke out an existence in the lower five miles of the river. But the pinks only have a two-year lifespan, whereas other species spend multiple years out in the ocean. So the pinks had to contend with all the years of dam removal, murky, sediment-filled water, and it, it killed off many of them. Even now, six years later, biologists are still worried about the pinks. Meanwhile, the coho and chinook salmon have fared better, but both of those species are supported by those two hatcheries that operate on the lower five miles of the river. And the chinook and coho received assistance throughout the dam removal years. A big reason why the dams were removed was to restore the fish runs to their natural wild state. With the dams gone, many, many people argue that the hatcheries are no longer needed. Studies have actually shown that hatchery-raised fish are less resilient in the wild and make survival for wild fish harder. Those opposed to the hatcheries argue that the ecosystem should be left alone and that the hatcheries should be shut down. But the tribe, which runs one of those two hatcheries, understandably, has waited a century for the moment their ancestral homeland could see the Elwha River run free again. And without the hatcheries, where would the Chinook and Coho be? Here's Rob Ellison again. Well, they're, they're actually being run with the best science and skill that they can be for this purpose. You know, we are trying to make sure that genetic pool for the, the salmon populations are maintained and doing it with least impact. Plus, the hatcheries support local jobs, and the tribe hopes that one day, with the hatcheries' support, the runs will become strong enough to support commercial fishing. John McMillan says he understands and agrees with the decisions the tribe has made. He works closely with them, and quite often. Still, John feels that hatcheries ought to serve sort of a short-term bridge and not operate forever. As an example of how heated this issue has gotten, take the day September 17, 2011. It was the day the ceremony was organized to commemorate the dam removal process. The governor of Washington, the secretary of interior, those VIPs, they were all in attendance. And the day before that ceremony, September 16th, a group of conservationists filed a lawsuit against the hatcheries claiming they were illegal. So even before the dam came out, the lawsuits were already flying around about the hatcheries. Yeah. And in the meantime, fishing, both recreational and commercial, is still banned on the Elwha. The populations of fish, while rebounding, are still just too low. 
Right now, people working and studying the Elwha are ecstatic about a run of, say, 6,000 Chinook or 900 summer steelhead trout. But this is a river that used to support 400,000 fish. This river has just barely begun to recover. Is this like a is this a model for other places? Like, is this a way to actually help restore some of those salmon runs? That's a complex question. I, I think the short answer is a, a resounding success. Yes, uh, this is a model. Uh, conservationists often point to the Elwha as a beacon of what dam removal can mean for an ecosystem. And like you said, there are thousands of dams throughout the entire United States, and conservationists would love to see hundreds of them come down. And here's sort of the interesting thing. Luckily, many of those dams that they would like to see removed are not nearly as large or complex or require nearly as much coordination as the two dams on the Elwha. Some are simply causeways, a few feet tall, that have outlived their use, but they block natural currents and fish. Others have fallen into disrepair, and it would be better, both ecologically and just pragmatically, to remove them. One of the biggest dam removals on the docket is on the Klamath River in southern Oregon. And for those who support dam removal, there are even bigger dams that they would love to see taken out, especially, for instance, on the Snake River, also in the Pacific Northwest. So the Elwha stands as an example, but these things take decades to accomplish. Even after Congress passed the act that allowed the removal of the dams on the Elwha, it took another two decades to make it happen. Listening to this story, it sounds, you know, this dam situation on the Elwha, it sounds like so much of our human condition, really. Like, we hear this all the time. Like, there'll be an issue. We know what we need to do. We argue about it a lot. We say it's too big of a problem to solve. And then somehow we do it. And then we think to ourselves, like, why didn't we do this decades ago? I couldn't agree more. We as a species have screwed up a lot of the natural world, whether it's overfishing our oceans or deforesting the Amazon or overlogging the Pacific Northwest. But it feels like things that can seem like crazy ideas when we actually execute on them, it can lead to outsized positive impacts that make the world a better place. It sort of reminded me, actually, of a a family story that John told me. He is a fifth-generation Pacific Northwesterner. He said that throughout the generations of his family, a similar story got passed down again and again. You were born a generation too late. You missed the amazing fishing that I had when I was your age. What is interesting now is that some father is going to be able to sit here and tell his child that, you know what, we're going to break that chain. You, son, sometime in the next 10 to 40, 50 years are going to have better fishing in the Elwha River than anybody has in the past 100 years. And this is what strikes me as so interesting and awesome about dam removal is that it provides a sense of hope that we don't otherwise have. So for the first time in generations of folks who have been born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, there's a generation of people coming now that will have better opportunity to fish for fish and salmon and steelhead in the Elwha than we ever had. There's almost nothing you can look to and say it's going to be better in 50 years than it is now. And this is one of those rare places where we can say, look, in 100 years, the Elwha is likely to be better off than it is now. 
doesn't mean we can make it all go back to perfection in a short period of time, but there are ways to recover our ecosystems and live in better balance. And that doesn't require automatically living like cave people, right? We can reduce our footprint, have a really high quality way of life and, and still give nature a fighting chance. Thank you, John, Russ, and Robert for sharing your story. So our stories, they come from the community. They come from conversations with friends and friends of friends and acquaintances. And we do that by getting out in the community, by climbing, by riding, hiking, going to film festivals, etc. But the reality is that we're doing a little bit less of that right now. So the way we typically source those stories, it's changing and evolving. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a tip or a story lead or just a suggestion, please give us a shout so that we can keep filling out our stories moving forward. You can use a submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. You can email us at editor at ducttapethenbeer.com. Music today from Cordelia Zars, Fitzcahal, Kai Angle, Kren Christensen, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Andrew Burton, Ashley Langholz, Jen Alchel, Cordelia Zars, Jen's back. Nice work, Jen. Cordelia Zars and me, Fitzcahal. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.